Good to have you here. Apparently, some people are expecting a long haul here. They're all getting coffee, so. <clears throat> I have to admit, actually, I got to do a little self-editing uh, today because I kind of got worked up last night. And if you're in a hurry and you want things timely, you don't want me to get all worked up because it just, it doesn't, it just kind of goes on. So I'm going to try to control myself today. So this is, uh, this is week two of Facebook for me. Woohoo! And I'm, I'm still on Facebook. I haven't been kicked off yet. Um, so that's a good thing. So the, the, the first week of Facebook was a lot of like just connecting with people uh, in our community and some of you, people I already know, and that was kind of fun. Uh, even getting to know some people that I see a lot but didn't really know really well. I've learned some, I've just really learned some interesting things about some of you, um, and that's been fun. And, uh, and then this week is kind of like uh, some, some friends that I went to college with found out I was on Facebook. And so then there was a whole bunch of that stuff going on, reconnecting with friends from college and friends from high school even this week. And um, yes, we had high school when I was a kid. And so I've been connecting with some of them and that's been fun. But it really kind of uh, made me think, kind of took me back a little bit, especially to thinking about college. And college was, you know, college was a great time. I would never want to go back there. Uh, I would never want to go through college again, but it was fun while it lasted. But college for me, was, um, it was just kind of this uh, amazing time where I went from just one way of life to an entirely different way of life. And, and to kind of explain that to you, when I was growing up uh, in grade school, junior high and high school, um, there wasn't a, I didn't grow up in a family where there was a lot of affirmation. And maybe for some of you, that, that would just be something you couldn't relate to at all, and maybe some of you could. Um, we just, we didn't give uh, pats on the back in my family, and we didn't, you know, way to go kind of thing. And, and I just kind of grew up in this culture where um, the things that I was good at were not the kind of things that um, most people gave affirmation for. And so as I was growing up, I'll just be honest, I really lacked self-confidence. And so there were a lot of things growing up I just didn't do, things I wanted to do, things I wanted to try, but I didn't have the confidence to do it. Uh, when, when I was growing up, you know, it, it, one way to get, like, a lot of affirmation was to be in sports and to be good at it. And so I never got any affirmation. I was in sports. I just didn't get any affirmation about it, you know. And so that was kind of tough when a lot of my friends were getting a lot of affirmation from a lot of people that I was really desiring affirmation from. Not getting that. That, that just has a way of just killing your self-confidence. Um, I wasn't an outgoing kid. Um, I, I was very kind of quiet. Very, I, I know, people change very kind of quiet and, and private. And, you know, when you're like that, when you're an introvert, again, it's not the kind of thing. Most people don't come up and pat you on the back and go, man, I just love how introverted you are. You know, you don't, you don't get that. Um, I wasn't really popular. I, wasn't, I had some close friends, but I wasn't the kind of kid that people sought out and wanted to be friends with. As I've shared with you before, I wasn't academic. I had been told from the first grade on that I wasn't smart, that I never would be smart. And I believed that all the way uh, into college. Um, and so I wasn't into sports. I wasn't uh, good at academics. Um, I wasn't, I know people change, but I wasn't what you would consider good looking when I was young. Um, <laughs> and, except my mom. She thought I was very handsome, but you know, I was skinny and I had the big glasses and, I, and all that kind of stuff. And so, so I, as I was growing up, I just, I was not the kind of person who had self-confidence. And if you've been there, you know what I mean. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's difficult because there's so many things you want to do that you just won't try. And then I got into college. And college for me was this kind of, 
it was this time where I moved out of the house and I moved into another state. I was going to a Christian college, just a, a whole new context, having not lived in that kind of context with other Christians before. And pretty soon I began to feel God kind of pushing me to do some things that I was very uncomfortable with. Um, you know, in a local church I was involved in, I was getting pushed to, to start teaching the Bible to groups of people, and I was very uncomfortable with that. I felt God pushing me into some relationships and pushing me into some other activities that I was very uncomfortable with. A lot of struggling that was going on with God during that time because I lacked self-confidence. Now, what do you do when you lack self-confidence in this world? Well, there's a lot of different approaches that people use to gaining self-confidence. You know, you can always read a book, go to Borders. There's lots of books on how to become a confident person. You can always go to a seminar. I had a a friend who uh, went to a hypnotist you know, <laughs> I don't know. He says it worked. I'm not sure. Uh, sometimes we surround ourselves with affirming people. That's a good tactic. If I can just surround myself with people who think I'm it, you know, I'm all that, and they're always telling me good things about myself, then I'll probably feel pretty good. And sometimes we think if I could just get in a relationship with that person, if they would just accept me or love me, that's all I would need. Uh, for some people, it's accomplishments. If I had enough money, because we all know in our society, if you have lots of money, then everyone will like you, and then you'll be a confident person or are a big one in our society. Sometimes it, you see it kind of plainly and sometimes it's a little uh, beneath the surface. But a big one in our society is if you want to have confidence, you just need to get good looking. That's what you need to do because everyone knows that good looking people are really confident, right? And uh, so you just got to start working out or eating right or getting hair plugs or whatever it takes so that you're good looking and then you'll have confidence. Now we can, we can laugh at some of that stuff. We think it's silly, But most people believe it. So what do we do? How do we get to a place where we can have kind of a true self-confidence? And in today's passage in Ephesians, it's a prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus. But it's a prayer that I believe he would still pray for us today. And here's the idea. Paul's prayer is not for us to get self-confidence. No, there's there's nothing wrong with having some self-confidence. There can be some benefits to that. But that's not... That's not what Paul's talking about today. Paul's going to talk about how to get a different kind of confidence, what I might call a Christ confidence or a spiritual confidence or or a supernatural confidence. And in chapter 3, verse 14, he says this. He says, now, for this reason I kneel before the Father. So this is a prayer on, on, on Paul's part. He says, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul says, for this reason... I'm going to pray. And and there's some debate on what the reason is. What is Paul uh, praying about based on what reason? And some people think it's linked to the end of chapter 2. Some some people think it's linked to the middle of chapter 3. Personally, I I think it just, I think Paul's saying, you know, everything I wrote in chapter 1, everything I wrote in chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3, just think about that for a minute. God has made us in Christ to be saints. Remember we talked about that the very first week in the series. He says, you are saints. You have been adopted by God. You have been um, enabled and secured in the Holy Spirit. You have been forgiven of your sins. God is unifying us into one family. Uh, We are becoming prisoners of Christ. Uh, He has made us stewards of a mystery. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I look at some of this stuff, I think, that's great. I'm glad God's made me to be a saint. I'm glad God's made me a steward of a mystery. But sometimes it can be a little intimidating to think about going out and confidently sharing our faith, 
to think about going out and becoming close friends with people that maybe we feel a little uncomfortable with. There's a lot of stuff so far that we've covered that hopefully you felt a little bit uncomfortable about. And Paul says, what do you do about that when some of this stuff, some of this following Christ stuff feels a little intimidating? See, we need something better than self-confidence. What we need is the kind of confidence that God offers, a spiritual confidence, a Christ confidence, not a confidence in ourselves or in our abilities because those things come and go, but a confidence in Christ in us. See, when we lack a spiritual confidence, a confidence in Christ in us, it makes it difficult to live by faith, doesn't it? When we lack a confidence in Christ in us, it makes it difficult for us to share our faith as we talked about last week. It'll make it difficult for us to to put ourselves aside and serve other people when we're insecure. It'll be difficult for us to, to fellowship with other people. It will be difficult for us to believe that God can use us. But when we have that kind of confidence in Christ, we can begin to live boldly for God. So as we come to the end of chapter three and we begin to talk about what it means to live in Christ, Paul wants to give us some, some steps to gaining a true, lasting kind of confidence. And I see this passage as a progression, if you will, and he starts this way. He says, now a true kind of confidence begins on the inside. It always starts on the inside. That's where confident faith starts. In verse 16 again, he says, now I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with, with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now watch the progression that Paul gives us here. He says, first we start with God and all of his riches. So there's God in heaven, and he's got all of his riches that we've talked about. His, his love, his grace, uh, his adoption, uh, you know, uh, all of that stuff that God has for us, the stuff we've talked about. And Paul says, think about it this way. It starts with God in heaven with all of these great riches. And then it comes through his spirit. So we talked about the fact that when we come to Christ, that God places his spirit And that goes to the third part of the progression, inside of us. God says that we have an an inner being. Some people call it the mind or the soul, the spirit or the will, but, but it's the place where you think, where you feel, where you decide, where you relate to God. It's the immaterial part of you. This body, this body will, you know, slowly kind of go downhill. You may have heard that. You may not have experienced that. But you know, we live in kind of this irony where the, the body is going in one direction, but the, the soul is moving in another direction towards Christ-likeness. Now, the Bible says some interesting things about our inner being, our inner self. For instance, it says that our inner being can see. Now, it's not talking about the physical eye. It's, it's talking about perception. It, it says that our, our, our mind can take the things that we see and, and it can pull things out of that. It can perceive things that the eye can't see. Um, it says our inner being can hear things. Jesus said, let him who has ears hear. Everybody in his presence had ears. They could, they could hear, but he was talking about something more than that. To spiritually perceive in your soul something. The Bible says that our soul can taste and see that the Lord is good. It goes beyond mere physical stuff. We're told that the, the internal person can be exercised. You know, spiritually, it can get buff, it, it, it can get strong, or we can let it. We can let it go downhill and get, and, and get lazy. It, it says that we need to keep it clean. Um, our soul can build up with sin and all that kind of stuff, or it can be cleansed through confession. The Bible says that the soul must be fed with the Word of God so that it can be strong. Now, most people look for confidence 
on the outside. That's typically what we do. If we're feeling a little insecure, then if we could just, you know, if we could just get in the right crowd, right, then we'll feel a little more confident about ourselves. If we could just bring our GPA up a little bit and, you know, brag about that, then we'll have a little more confidence. Or if we could just have a success at work or make that sale or whatever it is, if I could just get other people to affirm me, that's a big one, isn't it? You see this a lot. If I could just get people to say, man, you're awesome, then I'll have a lot of security based on what other people say. And that's kind of a funny thing because here's the dirty little secret we all know about the praise of other people. And that is that if you can get someone to say really good things about you, the first time they do it, it tends to feel pretty good, doesn't it? But then after a couple times, have you noticed that, that, that it doesn't feel quite as good? And then instead of one compliment, maybe you need three compliments or four compliments. And instead of one person, you need it from a few more people. And then you start to need it more often. And then here's a strange thing for insecure people. Insecure people can have like 99 people say, you're the bomb, you know. You're it. You're awesome. One person can come along and go, you know, man, you're you're stupid, you know. Or say one negative thing. and, And who does an insecure person listen to? They listen to the one negative voice. See, we need to stop listening to those voices. We need to listen to the voice of God. That's the path to true spiritual confidence. Focus on God's voice in your life. In verse 17, he goes on and says this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, he says it's an inside job. Now, you may read this and say, well, doesn't Christ already dwell in the heart of every believer? And the answer would be yes. But here, Paul's talking about the the quality of the presence of Christ in a person. In fact, that word dwell is a compound word uh, from two words meaning down and to inhabit a house. And some commentators like to say it's, you know, Paul's talking about down-home living here. What he's talking about is uh, having the kind of life where Jesus settles deep down into your life, into every part of your life. There was a book written years ago called My Heart, Christ's Home. Anyone ever read this? This is is an easy read. This, I'm not joking, this is the new expanded edition right here, okay? (laughs) So, and if you want to borrow it, you can. This is Matthias's, so you're welcome to have it if you'd like. Um, But in this book, uh, My Heart, Christ's Home, it's it's a book about a young man who uh, asked Jesus Christ into his heart. And he he pictures asking Christ into his heart. He thinks of his, his heart, his inner person like a house with many different rooms. And when he asks Jesus into his life, what he pictures is he's, he, he fixes up a guest room for Jesus. And Jesus can stay in the guest room and they can have a relationship together. And so as the, as the book begins, this man asks Jesus into his heart and, you know, Jesus is in his, in his guest room. And uh, the next morning it says that, that Jesus kind of wanders out of his guest room and he wanders into the guy's study. And so he's in there and the guy comes in and he sees Jesus and he's like, you know, what are you doing in here? And Jesus said, well, I thought I'd just kind of look around the house and see what you got going on here. And I came into this room, into your study, and it's, you know, <laughs> it's kind of shocking. Some of the books you have on the shelf and some of the stuff you're reading and some of the stuff you're filling your mind with. And, you know, the guy's kind of like, wow, Jesus, I, you know, I fixed you up a room. <laughs> Couldn't you just stay in your room? You know, what's the deal? And, and Jesus is like, well, no, see, I don't really do that. And I, so I want to talk to you about this study of yours. And so they, they talk a little bit about it. And Jesus talks about how, you know, the things that you fill in your mind, the, those those determine, those shape the kind of person you are. Jesus says, 
wouldn't you like to fill your mind with some better stuff than this? And so they, they talk about it, and Jesus begins to put his word on the bookshelf and, you know, kind of do that kind of thing, rearrange it a little bit, and that's cool. And then Jesus wanders into the dining room. Now, the dining room in this guy's life kind of represents his appetites, the things that, that he craves. And so for this guy on the table in the dining room were things like money and fame and, and popularity— and so Jesus sits down, and he's not really impressed <laughs> by the menu. And so, you know, they start to talk about it. Again, the guy's a little uncomfortable, like, I, you know, I didn't, I, I fixed it up a room. You know, you, you want a TV, or what's the deal? But what are you walking around my house for? And so they begin to talk about this, and Jesus says, you know, really the best food is to do the will of God. That's what I found. And so they, they talk about that. And then Jesus wanders into the living room and he wanders into the guy's workroom at one point where the guy's got lots of power tools and he, but he just makes little gadgets and trinkets and Jesus challenges him to use his gifts to, to really serve other people. Eventually, uh, one day Jesus wanders into the guy's bedroom and that, that, was, not, uh, that was really a problem because this guy, he had uh, a girlfriend at the time and he had a physical relationship going on that he didn't want Jesus walking in on that. And Jesus walks in on it. And of course, the guy's really uncomfortable with that and says, I'd prefer that you weren't in here, but Jesus apparently isn't going anywhere. And um, so they have to have a talk about that. And, you know, Jesus just kind of lays it out. He says, you know, I made your body. And I'm, I, I created sexuality. I created it to be a good thing. It could be a good thing if you use it the right way. If you use it the right way, it's going to be an amazing thing. But you're ruining your life here. I have something better for you. Don't, 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 don't sell yourself for something like this. And so it's a kind of an uncomfortable situation. But this, this young man begins to understand that Jesus is never going to be content just to live in his guest room. He's got bigger plans for this guy than that. So finally, one day, the guy gets the idea, and he, he thinks, you know what? The reason there's so much tension in my life with Jesus is because he won't stay in the room, and that's the problem. The problem isn't that he won't stay in his room. The problem is that I thought he would. I need to stop doing that. In fact, he gets the idea. He goes in to a safe, and he pulls out the, the, the you know, slip on the house, the ownership slip, and he takes it to Jesus, and he signs it over, and he says, here, the house is yours now. Belongs to you. Go anywhere you want. Do anything you want. And that's, that's what it means for Jesus to dwell in your heart. Just to, to be down deep into every aspect of your life. To invite him into every conversation, into every relationship. To have him dwell in your life. That's what he's talking about here. Real confidence in life begins when Jesus dwells deeply in our life. That's what Paul's saying here. Let him fill your soul. And once Jesus begins to fill your life, not just be in your life, but fill your life, then he says, then there's a, an, another way that you can begin to get a Christ confidence in your life. And that is begin to learn to measure the love of God in your life. Measure God's love in your life. In verse 17 he says, and I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now these two words, rooted and grounded. Rooted is an agricultural word, obviously referring to a plant that, that has its roots down into the soil where it draws its nourishment. And Paul says, first of all, understand that as a believer, that's, that's what you're like. You're rooted down into God's love and you're drawing up nourishment. Secondly, he says you're grounded, and that was an architectural word that referred to like the foundation of a house. And he says, you know, that's, that's kind of what God's love is like for you. It's like being rooted. It's being grounded. But here's, here's Paul's point. He doesn't say you need to try to get rooted. You need to try to get grounded. He says you already are if you're in Christ. 
You already have God's love in your life. That's not what he's talking about. In verse 17, part B, he tells us what he's talking about. He says, now I pray that you being rooted and grounded in God's love may have, notice this, power together with all the saints. And here's where he's getting it. To grasp, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That word grasp is what he's getting at here. That word means to, to comprehend something. It means to, to lay a hold of something. It has the idea of intellectually knowing and personally owning something. In other words, what Paul's saying is this. You're already loved, right? We've talked about that many times. You, if you're in Christ, you're already loved. You already have all this love. You're already swimming in this stuff, drowning in stuff. That's great. You need to get a hold of it now. You need to start to grasp it in your life. Is it possible that your life is completely filled with God's love and you don't even know it? Paul says you need to begin to, to grasp God's love. And I want you to notice a really key thing he says here. He says, I want you to do it together. I want you to do it together with all the saints. Now, this is a theme that's going to just kind of get louder and louder and louder as we go through the rest of the book. And that is that God has saved us to be a family. And I think it's interesting that Paul says when it comes to grasping God's love, it is a team thing. It's a family thing. You will never fully grasp God's love all on your own. It would be like, imagine when you came in this morning, if every, every one of you were handed a, a, a piece of a jigsaw puzzle, right? And as you came in and sat down, you could look at that piece, and maybe you could see a little color and maybe a little shape on there, and you could maybe just tell a little bit, but you probably wouldn't know what the picture looked like or what it was a part of. But if we set up a table in the middle of the sanctuary and everyone brought their pieces and we put them together, we could begin to see some things that we never saw with just our piece, and he says, that's, that's what we're talking about here when it comes to, to understanding God's love. You can't do it on your own. You have to do it as a team. You do it as a family. As we begin to do life together as believers, as we begin to connect with other believers, we see God's love in a way that we'd never see on our own. For one thing, we get a chance to see how God loves other people. God loves us in some particular ways, but when we look at the lives of other people, we begin to see, oh, there's some different ways that God loves people, and that gives us a bigger picture of God's love. But we also get to see God's love through others as well. As they help us, encourage us, serve us, we experience different aspects of God's love. So the fullness of God's love is discovered, not individually. We discover it as a family, and that's one of the reasons that this is so good. That getting together as a church family is so good. It's good for instruction, but it's really good for getting a a, a grasp on God's love as we spend time talking together. That's why hanging out in the foyer afterwards for a while is a good thing. Not just for the coffee, you know, but because we get a chance to experience God's love. That's why getting together with people in grow groups and in different situations is such a good thing. We experience that love of God. And notice how he describes it. He describes it this way, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. Now what Paul's talking about here is the the idea of measuring God's love. He says, now God's love, and and Paul's kind of talking out of two sides of his mouth here. He's going to say, now God's love needs to be measured. But God's love is bigger than you can measure. But God's love should be measured. But God's love is beyond measuring. So he's kind of going in two directions here. He says, you need to learn how to measure the love of God that you can. Measure what you can. And then always remember that it's bigger than that. But you can measure what you've experienced, can't you? How do we measure God's love? Well, there's some different ways. You can measure it by looking for it. That's a good way to start. 
Paul says you need to have eyes that begin to recognize God's blessings in your life and recognize his love. I find it's a good practice when I experience God's love in my life to write it down. I call that journaling because it sounds manly, but you know, you can call it whatever you want. I like to write it down. That way I can go back and look at it later and think about it and meditate on it. A good way to measure God's love is to thank him for it. A good way to measure God's love is to tell other people about it. When you experience a blessing of God in your life and you tell someone else, that's always a good way to measure God's love because then you kind of have to think it through, don't you? How will you express it? Reflecting on it. Finding ways to, to show your appreciation to God. Now Paul says some things in here that seem to be a little contradictory. He says you need to learn to measure the love of God in your life. And I would encourage you, if, if you're not doing that in a practical way to think, how could you practically measure God's love in your life? And then Paul throws this in. He says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So Paul's talking about kind of an intellectual understanding here. And he's saying this, you can experience God's love, but it will be beyond intellectual understanding. Now that's okay, because there's a lot of things in life that are beyond our intellect. There's a lot of things in my life that I wrestle with that are beyond my intellect, but I still like to think about them anyways. I like to think about extra-dimensionality, you know? I think it's a cool thing to think about. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I know what it's like to live in a world where there's three space dimensions and each dimension exists at a 90-degree angle to the others. I get that. I don't get a fourth one. That's the kind of thing that keeps me awake at night. Take out a piece of paper and try to write that down. You can't do it. It, it drives you crazy. I don't get extra-dimensionality, but I like to think about it. I don't get the trinity. I really don't. How can three be one and one be three? And I don't know, but I like to think about it. I don't understand why people drink tea. It, always, it smells good, but it, it never delivers when you taste it. I don't understand why God made cat. Hey. I don't understand why God made cats. I don't understand. And here's, and by the way, okay, yeah, and by the way, so last night there was a whole big hubbubaloo on Facebook about Pastor Bob slamming cats, okay? Just really get over it, all right? So, like, hey, cats, whatever. And then, like, God's eternality. There's a good one. Think about, oh, wow, God, God goes back in time forever. There's never a beginning. That's, I don't know, God will go on forever and ever, and they'll never, I just think about that. Now, I don't get it. I don't intellectually, but, but I'll tell you what, it's, I actually find it to be a helpful exercise to think about it, because it reminds me that God is all that, you know, and more. And that's good. And that's what he's saying about God's love. God's love is like that. We can measure what we experience, and we ought to. It's a good thing. But just remember, it's the tip of the iceberg. There's more to it than that. God's passion for you, yeah, you, you get some of that, but just remember, he's way more passionate about you than, than you could possibly understand. His unseen work on your behalf. You see some of it, be thankful for it, measure it, but just remember it's bigger than that. The price Jesus paid for you on the cross. You get some of it, Measure it, be thankful for it, but remember, it's bigger than that. God's blessings, his forgiveness in your life, God's love is something we can know. It's something we can be filled with and benefit from and enjoy and experience, but it's also beyond our full comprehension. And that should give us confidence as we live for God. I was thinking this week about what it must be like for God the Father to look at his children and I kind of thought, I was looking at my children, my three kids, and I, and, and I just realized, I, I love my kids so much. I'm so filled with love for my kids. As I look at my, my kids, I, I know that I see things in them that they don't even see in themselves. I see a giftedness and abilities in them that, that amaze me, that blow me away. They don't see it like I see it because I'm their dad, right? So I see things in them 
that they don't even see in themselves. I see their worth. I see their value. I see their, their potential. And I find so much joy in knowing them. They don't even know how much joy I find. They can experience some of that in different ways. My love for them goes beyond that. And you know, those of you who are parents, you know what I'm talking about. There's just a love that a parent has for a child, and there's just, there's, I, it goes beyond measuring. But we can experience that in, in some ways. And so it is with God as our Heavenly Father. We get to experience some of this love, but it's deeper than we can comprehend. And yet, the more we grasp and the more we measure, the better it will be for us and and spiritual confidence in our lives. The The more we know that God loves us, the more confidence that's going to give us to live for Him. The more we understand that God is with us and will never leave us and will never forsake us no matter what we do, the more confidence it can give us to live for Him. The more we understand that God has great plans for us based on His love, the more Christ confidence we can have, the more we honestly understand that God is going to work every situation in our life for our good, the more confidence we can have to march out into the future and to live for Him. Take time to measure out God's love for you. Paul says, you want to have confidence in your life? First of all, you understand that it starts on the inside. Secondly, you need to, you need to experience God's love and measure that out in your life the love that's already there. And the third thing he says is that as you do these, you'll be able to experience this third one, and that is to give the credit, to give the glory, he says, to God, to give credit where credit's due. In verse 21, he says this now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, a lot of times when we read this, we just think he's, he's, he's closing up the prayer to doxology. But I love this. This is my favorite part of the prayer. There's so much here. Notice what he says. He says, now God's power is at work within us. Now, I love that. In fact, I want you to notice something here that you may not see at first. There is something missing in this prayer that we would normally insert in there. It goes like this. First, first Paul says, um, it starts with God and all of his riches, all right? And, and as Christ comes into your life, you can begin to experience, and that's the second part, the love of God in your life. So as, as you focus on the inward person, you experience God's love in your life, and then here's what I would expect. He, what he says then is that you will experience God's power in your life, and you'll bring glory to God. What surprises me is I would kind of expect a step in the middle where he'd say, first you have Christ dwelling in you, then you measure the love of Christ, and then you'll go out and do some stuff. You'll do some stuff and say some stuff and be some stuff, and then you'll bring glory to God. But this isn't even in the equation. If you look at what Paul's saying is, if you're living in Christ and you're measuring his love, this part that brings glory to God, you don't even have to think about that. God will begin to do that. It's his power at work in you as you live by God's spirit. You will begin to show God's love to other people. If, you are, if you're living in Christ, focusing on his spirit, living in his love, guess what? You're going to do that. You're going to begin to show God's love to other people. You're going to become a generous person, one who wants to serve others and help people find their way to God. And it says that he'll do more than you could ask in your life. He, he's going to do more than you could imagine in your life. One time Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, now I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Jesus says, you're going to do some amazing stuff as disciples. 
How is that possible? Jesus says, well, I'm going to the Father. And I'm going to send down my spirit. And my spirit will be in you. When Jesus was on this earth, he was in proximity near people. Jesus says, after I go to be with the Father and I send the Spirit, I'm going to be inside of you. And not just one of you, but every single one of you. Imagine what that would look like. A community of people who all have the Spirit of God inside of them. Imagine how many hands of Jesus that would be in a community. How many feet. How, how many ways God can express his love to people. Jesus says, there's going to be more of my hands, more of my feet, more of my compassion, more of my love all over the world. And the result is this. He says that when people see that in you, when they see God working in you, when they see a person who focuses on the inner being and and derives a confidence from that, when they see people who have been measuring God's love and are just living in that love, and and they begin to live that out, people are going to see you, and they're going to be like, wow, that's incredible. In fact, what people are going to do is they're going to look at you and say, wow, you're incredible. You're an amazing person. What should our response be when that happens? And it does happen. We should give the glory to God. Don't fail to give the glory to God. Don't fail to point people towards Jesus Christ. Now, that's a phrase that we don't use a lot. We don't use the phrase glory to God because, I, well, we're really kind of conservative people. And we don't do that. You don't, I can't remember the last time I heard somebody walk around the church going, glory to God, right? Because only televangelists do that. We don't do that, right? We don't say stuff like that. Why don't we say stuff like that? Why don't we do that? When God works in our life, we should be pointing people to God. We should be giving him the glory. When we give God the glory for the things he does in our life, it does two great things. Number one, it builds the confidence of others in in Christ. It points them to him. People don't need to be impressed with us. That's not going to save them. That's not going to change their lives. What we need to do is point people to Jesus and say, he's the reason that I'm the person that I am. But it also helps grow our confidence even more. And yet, that's not exactly what Paul's getting at here. Paul doesn't say, as you individually have people say, wow, you're really something, give glory to God. This is Paul's point here. Paul says, to him be glory, notice, in, in the what? In the church, all right? Now, Paul says that's where the real glory is going to begin to shine. It's in the church. It's when God's people come together and they live together as God's people. Glory in the church. Now, one of the big problems is that when a church as a group of people feel insecure, that can be a problem. There's a lot of churches feeling insecure today. Uh, The economy hasn't been that good. And a lot of churches have been feeling the pinch financially. So, you know, and I talk to a lot of pastors, and you can see it. They're feeling insecure. We're not sure about, you know, income. What are we going to do about that? They're feeling insecure because maybe they're not growing as a church. And, and for them, that's really bothersome because it's all about numbers, you know. If, if we don't have more money coming in, more people coming in, then we don't feel very good about ourselves. And, and, and we're not popular enough. We're not cool enough, you know. Well, we're Christians. People laugh at us. They don't like our church. What are we going to do? And here's the danger. When churches begin to feel insecure about themselves, and I would just tell you there's a lot of churches like that today, when they begin to try to find security as a church in the wrong places, that's when a church gets in a lot of trouble. Like, you know, if we were just cool, <laughs> you know, if we, could, if we were just like the cool church in town, 
you know, then we could feel better about ourselves. Because if, if, if we could just grow, if we were just really big, you know, then we could feel secure about ourselves. We'd feel, we could feel good about ourselves. So there's a lot of churches that think that way. We just need to get big. Because if we get big, then we'll feel better about ourselves again. Or, you know, maybe we just need to kind of water down the gospel a little bit because sometimes people find that offensive. And then if we do that, people won't come and they won't think we're cool and we won't get big and the offering won't be good. So let's just kind of, let's, let's kind of be careful about what we say and what we don't say. Oh, we should talk about sex. That's a big one because churches have found, man, sex sells. So if churches talk about sex, then more people are going to come. And if more people come, the offering will go up and the offering goes up, then we'll feel good about ourselves. That's how we can get secure as a church. And a lot of churches, by the way, if you haven't noticed, are talking about sex today. A lot of churches because they, they, they just think if we talk about sex and we say the word sex a lot, right? Like I'm doing right now, right? Then everyone will get all excited and lots of people come to church. And I was looking on the internet this week <clears throat> about all the churches this last year that did campaigns and on, on, on the topic of sex. And um, <laughs> it was really, really discouraging. In fact, here was the big trend. You may have seen this. You probably heard about this. This was the big trend this year. Churches were having, pastors were teaching series on sex. And they would take out billboards in the community. I won't, I'm not even going to, I was going to show you one or two billboards that were sponsored by churches, but I decided I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to show you that. You can go look for it. But it's just, it's really pathetic about churches that were doing it. In fact, you may have seen there were many churches. One church tried it, and then everyone started getting on the bandwagon where they'd have like a, a th- <laughs> You know, we had like a, I don't know if you remember, we had like a campaign on, you know, 30 days of love. And there were some churches that had 30 days of sex campaign. I'm, I'm not making this up. Where they would challenge all their married couples in the church to have sex every day for 30 days. That was their challenge. That was the, that was the series. That was the big thing. They got lots of coverage on the news. Lots of people thought they were super extra cool for doing that. Right? Why would a church do that? Why? Are they that insecure that they've got to figure out a way so the world goes, ooh, you're cool. Oh, that's so neat. Here's a better strategy for a church. Do the same thing Paul's been talking about for us as individuals. Stop stop trying to find people to say, ooh, you're cool. And go back to God. Start listening to the voice of God. Start getting into the word of God. Start measuring out the love of God. Focus on God. Let God take care of the strategy for your church. How do we do that? How do we, how do we find security in God as a church? Well, we put him first in our hearts. If all of us, think, if all of us put God first in our hearts individually, what would that look like for us as a church? God would be first in the heart of this church. If all of us as individuals were living deeply in the love of God, what would that look like when we came together? we would be a group of people living deeply in the love of God. Imagine how powerful that would be. If we as individuals were bringing glory to God in every area of our life, if every one of us were individually giving God the credit for the good things in our lives, what would that look like as a church? In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may see your your good deeds, your, your lifestyle, and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, here's one of the really cool things for me as I thought about this this week. Gateway is a church that's shining a lot of light right now. We're not perfect, but there's a lot of light in this place. And one of the things I love to do is a lot of times when I'm out in the community, and this happened last week, I'm, I'm driving through the drive-thru at Starbucks, and I'm going through, it's, it was last Saturday, 
And the person waiting on me says, oh, well, what are you doing today? And I said, well, I'm on my way to work. And uh, they said, oh, you know, where do you work? And I said, oh, you know, I work over at Gateway. And their, their comment was, oh, man, I've heard some really cool things about that church. Isn't that the church where all, all you crazy people get up on Thanksgiving morning and go running? Isn't that, is that you guys? Yeah. And then you give all that money away to people who have, you know, who need food. Yeah, that's what we do. Oh, that's, that's really cool. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with people and they'll be like, oh yeah, I've got a neighbor who goes to Gateway and they came over and helped me one time. You know, do something that we needed or aren't you the church that feeds people or helps families out at Christmas or has programs for kids and it's really fun. It's fun for me to be out in our community and hear all the good things that people have to say about you. Now, we're not perfect and we know that, but there's a lot of light that's shining in this place. Here's the point. When that happens, we need to give the glory to God. When people say, oh, Gateway's a really cool church, we need to say, yeah, no, that's God. When people say, aren't you the church that feeds people who are hungry? We say, yes, we are that church, but it's because of God. We point people to God. We point people to his glory and to what he's like. And when people see God's light shining in you, when they see his love in you, you need to give God the glory. When they see God's compassion in you, you need to give God the glory. When they see his power in you, You need to give him the glory. When God answers your prayer, you need to give him the glory. When he blesses you, when he gives you success, you need to give the glory to God. That's what we do as individuals. That's what we do as a church. And when we do that, when we give the glory to God, it builds up the faith of those around us. I mean, imagine when somebody sees you and says, wow, you're an amazing person. You say, no, it's God in me. Imagine what that does for them. And it's good for us, isn't it? just to remember to give the glory, the credit to God. What would it look like for a church that was focused on God, that was focused on God's voice? What would it look like for a church full of individuals who put Christ first in their heart and for a group of individuals who practiced measuring God's love in their life? What would that look like when they came together and for a church that always gave the glory to God? What would it look like in our homes when the dads always gave glory to God? When mothers always pointed people towards Christ? When there were successes in the home? What would it look like in our workplaces and in our local government if when God worked, we gave God the glory? Can you imagine the confidence that it would give you as a Christ follower? Can you imagine the confidence that it would give us as a church? We live in a, in a kind of insecure time, don't we? You know, what's going to happen to the economy? What's going to happen with this and that? Imagine having the kind of confidence in this church that says, it just doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that we focus on Christ and we put him first, we measure his love, and we give him the glory. That's a place where God can work and do miracles and exist in power. That's, that's the kind of place that God wants Gateway to be. Amen? Pastor Bill, would you pray for us? Father, we thank you again for the awesome privilege of coming together this morning and, and to uh, share a name together, the family of God, for that great blessing. And Father, uh, as we go out today, we, we ask for the work of your Spirit uh, to touch every one of us inside, to uh, do what we cannot do. 
And Father, I pray you would show us uh, new depths and heights and widths of your love, a new understanding of your love this week. I, I pray you would give challenge and give each one of us an opportunity to just sit down and measure that this week, to think of it in, in new ways and, and uh, that your spirit would show us the greatness of your love, that that would touch our lives deeply, that we would be people who are marked by having uh, tasted and experienced your great love for us. Father, we, we ask for this, and I pray especially this morning for anyone who came in discouraged and they're lacking confidence, that you would minister to them, that you would build them up, that you would whisper to them about the depth of your love for them. And they would go out strengthened and encouraged confident in that love. Father, in everything that we face this week, in everything that we see and do, and as a church, we desire that you would be praised, you would be worshipped, you'd be glorified, that our attention would be on you, and that we would be pointing the attention of others towards you as well. What a great thing to experience this week. We look forward to what you're going to do in us and among us. In Jesus' name.